This man hosted a game show for 37 years and over 8,200 episodes. Answer, who is Alex Trebek? I'm sure you heard that Alex Trebek, longtime host of the game show Jeopardy, passed away the past week with cancer. What you may not know is that Alex Trebek can actually help us understand the book of 2 Corinthians. And in the process, his life may even be a kind rebuke to our own life. In an article on ChristianPost.com this week, Paul Essay said this, We could tick a litany of reasons why Trebek excelled in what he did. His voice, his calm self-assurance, his kindly attitude toward contestants. But here's the real secret to Trebek's long, long career. He never made it about himself. I was struck when I read that. It's true, isn't it? Alex Trebek never made it about himself. You never get that feeling when you watch Jeopardy, that this guy was self-absorbed. I mean, he never made it about himself. That's it. That's Christianity. That's Jesus. Continuing in the article, Paul Assay says, quoting Trebek, You have to set your ego aside, Alec, Alex told Vulture in 2018. If you want to be a good host, you have to figure out a way to get the contestants to, as in the old television commercial about the military, be all you can be. Because if they do well, the show does well. And if the show does well, by association, I do well. In 2012, Trebek said, I'm not introduced as the host of Jeopardy, not the star. My job is to provide the atmosphere and assistance to the contestants to get them to perform at their very best. Trebek's unassuming polish runs counter to what much of the culture seems to prize. Would-be creators and entertainers are, I think, encouraged to relentlessly promote themselves. That's how wannabe celebrities push their way into the spotlight and, who knows, snag their very own reality show. Culture prizes fame. It praises those who, in some respects, praise themselves. But that's not God's way. He doesn't call all of us to be rich or famous or, frankly, even successful. He encourages us to be deeply decent to give to others, to support and encourage, to remember always that it's not about us. It's about God and showing as much of God's love to the people around us as we can. We know from the streams of eulogies we've seen over the last few days how supportive and encouraging Alex Trebek was. He inspired millions not because he was famous, but because he so gracefully deflected that fame, pointing to the contestants on Jeopardy instead. Trebek's job, he felt, was to make other people successful. And in so doing, he found success himself. That's a powerful lesson. One we can teach our kids, one that perhaps we could learn ourselves. Culture prizes fame. And the church is not immune to this. Christians are not immune to this. We are not immune to this. One of the main themes and storylines 
of the book of 2 Corinthians is the super apostles, which I've probably mentioned every single week, these false teachers who had invaded the church of Corinth and how they made ministry about them. They prized fame. They wanted glory. They wanted compliments like Diotrephes in 3 John who loved to be first. But as we've seen over the last few weeks in 2 Corinthians, God's glory, not ours, is what we were made for, and it's what we are called to reflect to the world around us. And it's the only thing that can truly satisfy us, isn't it? We're not called to make life and ministry about us individually or about us as a church. We're called to make life and ministry about Jesus. We're called to make known God's glory to make much of His weightiness, to make much of His heaviness, to make much of His importance. But so many churches and Christians these days, it seems, have lost sight of this, especially in recent years. And that's why we now have this phrase, celebrity pastor. I mean, how did we get here? How did we get to the place where celebrity pastor became a thing? That's like saying good mayonnaise. It doesn't exist. Those words don't belong together. Well, the church in Corinth dealt with this too. They had cliques where they favored one pastor over another. And so Paul writes this letter to them to remind them that we are called to do everything for God's glory and not our own. Culture prizes fame. And the church does too. But we prize the fame of Jesus spreading from our church to this city all the way to the nations of the world. And so our big idea today is this. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Those words are attributed to a man named Count Zinzendorf, born in 1700, died in 1760. He was a bishop of the Moravian church. He spoke those words, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten, to missionaries who would leave and would be entering the mission field. And he encouraged them to give no thought to their own lives, not to seek glory for themselves, not to seek honor for themselves, but instead to just preach Christ die and be forgotten. Now, Count Zinzendorf is not saying that we shouldn't make an impact for God. He's not saying that we can't leave behind a legacy for our kids. I mean, we're talking about Count Zinzendorf right now. He's being remembered for something he said. But if we preach Christ and we share Christ and we make much of Jesus in our life, then we will make a difference for the kingdom of God. And then we'll die And most likely, we will be forgotten. In fact, a hundred years from now, I doubt anyone is going to remember any of us. That's sobering, isn't it? A hundred years from now, maybe one of your descendants will get on genealogy.com or something like that and and look you up. But for most of us, a hundred years from now, no one's going to remember us. But the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus will carry on long after we are gone. The reason Count Zinzendorf said, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten, is because of our tendency to make life about us, our glory, our wants, our wishes. Too often, 
Life just gets reduced and kind of funneled down to our little kingdom of self, which frankly isn't that impressive, is it? I mean, I I typically reduce and funnel life down to my little kingdom, what I want, and if you looked at my life and what I really wanted and wished for all the time, you'd say, that's not very impressive, especially compared to the glory of Jesus. And that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 is in your Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words to remind us that life and ministry should be done like Alex Trebek's tenure on Jeopardy. He never made it about himself. That's what Paul will show us. Never make it about you. Always make it about Jesus and his glory. And don't use Jesus and his glory to promote us and our glory, which is very easy to do as a Christian. To use Jesus and his glory as an opportunity for us to even promote ourselves. So Paul spells out his ministry philosophy here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Turn there in your Bibles if you haven't. And Paul's philosophy of ministry is completely opposite of how the super apostles did ministry. And the first thing we'll see is that Paul doesn't preach himself. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. For what we proclaim is not ourselves... But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul understands that ministry is not about him. And so Paul and company don't make a big deal out of themselves. They don't preach themselves. They aren't the center of attention. They don't suck every conversation back into them. They aren't looking for glory and compliments. Why? Because Paul knows That's really blasphemous. Only Jesus deserves glory. So Paul's not looking to be a celebrity pastor. He's not trying to ink a deal with Crossway Books. He's not out to become famous. Ministry is not about Paul. He doesn't connect every experience to himself. He knows that the gospel and the gospel only is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the only thing that opens blind eyes. And that's why Paul doesn't preach himself, because his glory will not open blind eyes. If Paul is making ministry about him, seeking compliments, that's not going to open anyone's eyes. So he has to point to Jesus and his glory, because Jesus' glory is what opens blind eyes. That's why Paul is not an egomaniac. He doesn't tie every event that happens to himself. In fact, Paul doesn't even need to think about himself. He doesn't connect things with himself. He doesn't connect every experience, every conversation with himself. He is just a servant of others who wants to glorify his Savior. Paul is not a narcissist. Sadly, there are many pastors who are narcissists. Narcissism is nauseating though, right? When you see it, wherever you see it, narcissism, when you see someone who's just in love with themselves, in love with hearing themselves talk, it's nauseating. And that person doesn't know, but they actually leave a trail of destruction behind them wherever they go. 
We see it with leaders everywhere nowadays, right? And it leaves a bad taste in our mouths because we see leaders and we see politicians who are so full of themselves, always tooting their own horn. And we're kind of sick of it, aren't we? But it's especially sickening in the church where we know that life is all about God's glory. I think social media has brought the narcissist out in all of us. We see it with musicians, politicians, actors, athletes. It's just self, self, self. But it's not just out there. It's in the church now. It's in the pastorate. And so Chuck DeGroote, because of this, uh, what's happened in churches over the last 10 or 20 years, has written a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church, where he says this, The narcissistic pastor is the only one who can occupy the limelight. Even if he publicly affirms someone, it's in service of his exceptional gift to hire talent or his brilliant vision for the church. Narcissistic pastors are anxious and insecure shepherds who do not lead the sheep to still waters, but into hurricane winds. These are traits and tendencies that do not belong in a follower of Jesus. And yet in ministry settings, narcissistic leaders can corral great power and may wield their power in cruel, manipulative, devious, and exploitative ways. Indeed, their rage is often accompanied by a simmering jealousy of anyone who steals attention, power, or admiration from them. Wow, and it happens all the time in churches. You get on social media, you can read about it. This is exactly what the super apostles were about. They were narcissists. They made ministry about them. They had to be the center of attention. They had to turn every conversation back to them. They were full of pride and arrogance. And on top of that, they were perfectionists, thinking that they could keep the Mosaic law and that they could actually earn righteousness with God through their behavior. Steve Brown says, narcissism and perfectionism are the devil's stepkids and they live in the same house. That was the super apostles. Narcissism and perfectionism. Listen, narcissism and perfectionism will ruin a church, but humility and getting low before the Lord will actually make a church thrive. But it's not just limited to pastors or politicians, is it? We are all just bent and wired to make everything about us, aren't we? And because of Adam's sin, every single human being is a sinner, Every single one of us is susceptible to some form of narcissism because every human being has been corrupted and is naturally sinful due to the fall. We're just wired to daily reduce and funnel life down to our little kingdom of self. That's what sin does to us. Sin bends or it it curves us inward instead of outward. Inward to focus on self while the gospel, on the other hand, moves us out to serve others. Augustine spoke about this in church history. He spoke of sin as the thing which bends or curves us down to the ground where it makes us like these wild beasts 
and less like God whom we were made to image. We kind of become monsters. Martin Luther picked up on this imagery by Augustine in the Reformation where Luther argued that sin actually bends or curves us in upon ourselves. The Latin phrase he uses is homo incurvatus in se. God created us to love him and to love others, but instead, because of sin, we're now consumed with ourselves, consumed with our lives, consumed with our own little kingdoms, and it just comes out in our conversations, doesn't it, and on social media. Well, then Luther's protege, Philip Melanchthon, also went on to describe sin as the painful, undeniable reality that the human heart has turned in upon itself. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a Redeemer. In fact, we need Jesus to continue to rescue us from us even after we believe, even after we've been born again. And that's why we will never outgrow our need for the gospel. And that's why Paul doesn't preach himself, because what the Corinthians need is a Savior, a Redeemer. They need the power of the gospel to transform them, to transform them out of their selfishness, and to transform them into servants. And that's why Paul also says he preaches Jesus Christ as Lord. Look at verse 5 again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So the second element of Paul's ministry was that he preached the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He preached Christ crucified for sinners. He preached, as he says in verse 4, Jesus Christ as Lord. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Kent Hughes says, The phrase, Jesus Christ as Lord, is shorthand for the gospel. Jesus Christ as Lord is shorthand for John 3.16. It's shorthand for Galatians 2.20. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's shorthand for Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's shorthand for Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. His shorthand for the gospel, the good news. Preaching Christ crucified without gimmicks, without sauce, like we saw several weeks ago, that was the secret to Paul's ministry. Preaching Jesus Christ as Lord has always been the secret to a God-honoring ministry. And yet we're so tempted to try all these other things, to try these gimmicks. We can just do this, then maybe they'll come in the doors. The secret is preaching Christ crucified. As the late great British preacher Charles Spurgeon, he knew this. Spurgeon was absolutely clear on why his ministry was so fruitful. He said this, it's because I preach Christ If I had not preached Christ and Christ crucified, then this church would have been emptied. Guess how many people were in Charles Spurgeon's church? 6,000. It was a mega church. He was a mega church pastor. 6,000 people came every week to hear Christ crucified. 
Not how-to sermons, not gimmicks. Just one man up there talking about Jesus. 6,000 people crammed into the metropolitan tabernacle to hear about Jesus week after week after week. Spurgeon is saying that it's not about him. It's about Christ and the message of Christ crucified that made his ministry so fruitful. We just don't believe it. I don't think pastors and churches believe it. If you preach Christ crucified, you'll be fruitful in your ministry. The temptation to look over and see all that that glitters and sparkles that the experts are telling me I need to do. Maybe I should do that. Then they'll come in. Spurgeon and Paul, I tell you, that's not the secret. Like Alex Trebek, Spurgeon never made it about himself. He knew that the secret to a successful Christ-honoring ministry was this. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. And that's what Paul did too. But where do Paul and company fit into the equation? Well, Paul says, with ourselves as your servants. Look again at verse 5. My water was leaking all through here the whole time. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So the third element of Paul's ministry was being a servant to others. Paul and company did not want to be noticed. They didn't want, they didn't need their ego stroked. Like when you go to a fancy dinner and they have servants who bring in the food and they refill the wine and they add extra sauce to your meat, you don't focus on the servants, do you? They're just there. They're just serving. And that's Paul and his friends. They actually want to go unnoticed. How countercultural to those who want to be noticed and to those who prize and value fame like the super apostles. The super apostles preached circumcision and law keeping as a means to salvation. And then they said, look at us, we're actually doing it. But as Paul told the Galatians, you know what Paul told the Galatians? There's only one thing that matters. And that's pretty important, isn't it? The apostle Paul says, hey, there's one thing that matters. We should listen. He said, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love and service of others. Listen to what he says in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For Paul, the only thing that counts is faith in God. It's expressing itself in love. Faith working through love. The only thing that matters is faith and trust in Jesus expressing itself in love for God and love for our neighbors. And how do you get faith then? By hearing the word of Christ. By hearing the good news over and over and over again. By preaching Christ Jesus as Lord. So Paul shows us here that the preacher's job is not to preach faith, not to preach love, not to preach giving, but to preach the word, to preach Jesus. My job is to preach the word of Christ because that creates faith, that creates trust. And faith expressing itself in love for God and love for neighbor is what matters most. Do you see how preaching Christ turns people into servants? Preaching Jesus turns people 
into servants. They become like Jesus. That's how God designed it so that even your children can get this. God has made it so easy for us. We can even say to our children, Jesus loved you and sacrificed and gave up for you. Hopefully that creates love and trust in their hearts that they then go love and serve their siblings. God made it so easy for us. It's like he just a little soft lob pitch. He's like, anybody can hit this, even your kids. The gospel creates faith and creates trust. So Paul preached Christ crucified, Christ Jesus as Lord because he wants them to have faith and trust and to believe. And so the million dollar question is, where does faith come from? If the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love, then how in the world do you get faith? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, where faith comes from. He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the gospel. Faith comes from hearing the good news. And so the gospel, the word of Christ, creates faith in us when we hear it. It creates trust. And that means that if you want more faith in your life or more love or more anything, you need to spend time hearing, reading, speaking the word of Christ, the gospel. So if you want more faith or you want more love for your spouse or more desire to serve other people, whatever it is that you want more of in the Christian life, you have to spend time thinking about, reading about, hearing the word of Christ, the gospel. If you want transformation and you want to change, it's the gospel that does that. Recall our big idea today. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Now, let me change it for a second. Preach Christ, Truly live, die, and be forgotten. When you preach the gospel to your own sinful heart, which is naturally curved in on itself, you will then begin to look out to others and to serve them. And then you will truly live. Staying trapped in your own little kingdom of self is not really living, and we all know that. We think getting our way in every situation will satisfy us, but it doesn't. I always think getting everything that I want, everything that I desire is going to satisfy me, but it doesn't. Serving others, on the other hand, that is truly living. So the only thing that will truly satisfy us is when we wake up, finally, and realize that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that matters is trust in Jesus as it's expressed in love for God and love for our neighbors. And so how do you get faith? By hearing the word of Christ, by hearing the gospel. And that was Paul's main message, and it's why he considered himself a servant to the Corinthians. And you know, that's one thing I love about grace. This church is full of servants, isn't it? Always people serving. Always. We had uh, Nate and Laura Ruiz's wedding yesterday, and it was so great to see all these people from grace there serving all day long. It was really cold to me all day long. It was really cold. And they're out there, outdoors, just serving away. It's what I love about our church. It's this church is made up of servants. But what was the main motive for Paul's ministry? He does ministry for the glory of God. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul does ministry for God's glory, contra the super apostles. 
It's all about Jesus. And let me tell you, that's not just like, like an overused cliche for Paul. Oh, it's for God's glory, God's glory. I mean, he really means this. He really wants to point people to Jesus and Jesus alone. He doesn't need to boast. He doesn't need to brag. He simply wants to point people to Jesus. He only wants to delight in Him. But because we are sinners, if we're honest, we still live for our own glory, don't we? J.R. Vassar says in a book he's written called Glory Hunger, he recognizes this tendency in all of us when he says this. He says, personally, on a big picture level, I know and delight in the preeminence of Jesus and have yielded my life to that reality. But on a granular level, I still find myself competing with Jesus for glory. I do things Jesus desires with motivations Jesus despises. Ouch. That stings, doesn't it? Doing things that Jesus desires, but doing them with heart motivations that Jesus despises. Ouch. We do that because we hunger for and crave glory. And the reality is that we seek glory for ourselves all the time without even knowing it. This is how entrenched and a part of us it really is. So what does that look like at the street level, seeking glory? Well, we see it when we do things and when we say things with the desire for other people's approval. We want people to think good of us. We want people to like us. We want people to say, hey, that guy's a great father. He's a great parent. We want that. Or it manifests itself in our lives when we want to be chosen and included in the cool group. We want to be popular. And so maybe we don't say things or don't do certain things because we know it will make us unpopular. Sometimes we don't respond to situations like we should respond simply because we fear backlash. We fear what other people will think about us. We don't want people to think ill of us. And if we're all honest here today, we all struggle with this. But if we want healing from this, we have to admit we have the problem first. If we want healing from our glory hunger, we have to repent. We have to move into repentance. Let me encourage you this week to make a mental note of every time you say or do something out of a desire to make yourself look good. You ever do that? You ever have a conversation with people and you say something and you walk away and you're like, oh my God, why did I say that? Why did I open my stupid mouth? What are they thinking about me? Why did I say that? You ever do? Has anybody else ever do that? I was at a wedding all day yesterday, and I thought, gosh, why do I just keep opening my mouth? What do they think about me? Make a mental note of every time you say or do something to get people to like you, and you will be amazed at how much you desire glory for yourself. So make that mental note, and then hightail it to the cross and find rest in Christ. Let your exposed glory hunger drive you to Jesus and make you even more dependent on Him. Listen, Satan's basic game plan is pride, seeking to draw us into his life of arrogance and boasting. But God's basic game plan is humility, drawing us into the life of his Son. That's where true life is, Humility, it ushers us into the life and freedom of the Holy Spirit through repentance and through prayer.
Jack Miller said, the prayer meeting is not an addendum. It functions as the very glowing center of all that a local church does. That's why we've been pushing our prayer meetings lately. Because prayer is the very glowing center of what we do. Why? Because that's where we go for our egos to die. We go to prayer so that our egos die. We go to prayer so that our pride begins to wilt and melt as we get low before the Lord and say, we need you, and then His power is glorified. When we go to prayer, that's where we begin to be drawn into His life. And when you regularly behold the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus, you will then find that the stress and pressure of trying to please people will actually begin to diminish. You won't care so much about what other people think about you when you're focused on God's glory and not your own. You'll actually truly begin to live. You'll be free. And you won't boast in self. And your ego will begin to die a long, slow death. Tim Keller says... The ego is incredibly busy. It is always drawing attention to itself. Busy trying to fill the emptiness. And it's incredibly busy doing two things in particular. Comparing and boasting. When we boast, we do so to create a self-esteem resume to desperately fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. Wow. When we boast, we're just trying to fill this emptiness that only the gospel can fill, only God's glory can fill. This is why we compare ourselves to other people. We want to feel better than others. We need someone to look down on, don't we? Functionally, most of us need at least one person in our life that we can look down on and maybe we'll not speak against them, but at least mentally think, I can't believe they do that. I'm better than them. It's like we have this built-in need for that. Having someone to feel superior to and to have someone to feel better than. But instead of seeing faults in one another as God's children, as His people, and dwelt with His Spirit, instead of looking for faults in others, we should be looking for evidence of God's grace. But we just need someone to look down on, and that makes us boast. But when we do that, as Tim Keller says, we're just desperately trying to create this self-esteem resume that will somehow fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. Only Jesus can fill that emptiness, and that's why we must preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel to your own heart, die to sin and selfishness, fade from the picture, be forgotten as Christ is glorified and shines brightly through you when you serve other people. Preach the gospel to your own heart, die to your own little kingdom of self, and be forgotten as you serve others for God's glory. And that will satisfy you and that will fill that emptiness. Here's what's 
so amazing about grace is that Jesus never made it about himself. No ego. Wow. I've never met a a person, a human being with, with no ego except for Jesus. Can you imagine a leader with no ego? The son of God with no ego? Selfless, giving up his rights, going to the cross to die for our sins, to die for our boasting, to die for our pride, to die for our desire for glory. He left the glory of heaven to give his life for a bunch of glory thieves. That's amazing. Even when you seek your own glory, he loves you and he forgives you. And just like the disciples were like them who argued over who of them was the greatest, and Jesus took the role of the servant in John 13, and he washed their feet. He does that with us. And as John tells us in John 13, it says that Jesus loved them to the end, and he loves you to the end. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are so merciful and kind to us. Uh, we do, we love the reflection in the mirror. We love glory. And so we need you still because we crave the glory of man more than the glory of God, just like the Pharisees in John 12, Lord. And we ask you to forgive us. We repent. Thank you that you don't condemn us. Thank you that you don't shame us. Thank you that you love us. And you wash our feet and send us on our way, Lord. We pray that your glory would be seen through us as we preach Christ and as we die to selfishness and fade from the picture and as we become forgotten as your glory shines through our lives as we serve other people. May you be glorified in our own individual lives, in our families, and here in this church. In your name we pray.